Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I want to read the first two verses, and then I'm going to skip down and read 6, 7, and 8. 1, 2, 6, 7, and 8, Ecclesiastes 3. It's a familiar, familiar scripture. I'm considering this message this morning to be the third in the past two weeks' message on the theme of zeal. So this will be the third message, a time for every purpose. Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 1. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot that which was planted, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. I want to say right off the bat that in order to navigate, especially as a Christian, through this life, you can't be stuck in some oversimplistic bumper sticker ideology. Life is complex, life revolves around seasons. And as God just inspired the author of Ecclesiastes to write, there's a time for every purpose. And if you notice the things, and that was only a partial list, when you read the whole scripture, there's a number of things listed. But war and peace, silence and speaking, a time to rend and to rip and a time to sow, time to plant and a time to pluck up. You see that these are all purposes under God's heaven. They're all purposeful. There are certain things that to us they seem negative and uh, um, we, we want to shy away from them and push away, but they're necessary parts of life. In their right season and in their right time, they are the thing to do. So for every purpose, there is a time. And the question this morning is, what is the purpose for our time, the time that we are in? How many of you, not rhetorically, but literally, would say in the past handful of years, you have noticed times changing, dramatic change in our world, five years, 10 years. Certainly those that have been walking through this life with their eyes open and have a historic perspective over the past decades, perhaps, have noticed that the world today is unrecognizable by the eyes of the world decades ago. And the world from decades ago no longer exists in the world of today. There is a time that has come upon us and there is a purpose. Bumper sticker ideology, it just doesn't work. It's oversimplistic because life is complex. I always used to be frustrated when I pull up to a, a car at a light that had the bumper sticker, war is not the answer. While I embrace the sentiment and I understand what they're saying, the reality is, is so says the person who's never been invaded. Because sometimes 
War is the only answer, much as it is distasteful, because usually the people that push nations into wars send the innocent to do their fighting for them, and so it's grievous. But sometimes war is the answer. Sometimes tearing up is the answer. Sometimes speaking out is the answer. Living in reality can be hard, but living under deception is merciless and cruel. If, if your bumper sticker ideology only allows you to look for the blessed, quote unquote, peaceful, happy path, and who wouldn't? I look for that in every situation. I don't look for trouble. I don't look for stress or difficulty, but sometimes my objective has stress and difficulty between where I stand and where I know God wants me to go. And if I try to circumvent it and go around and seek that path of peace, I end up lost and I never get to the destination that God has. I want you to listen to what Jesus said as he approached the city of Jerusalem. Now, when Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you had only known in this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close you in on every side. They will demolish you. So Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He prophetically foresees in a short period of time, actually less than 40 years from the time he uttered this, the city of Jerusalem would be laid siege to by the Roman Empire, destroyed, and the people demolished. The city perished and the nation of Israel collapsed. Failing to understand and to embrace the things that make for peace is the surest way of becoming surrounded and demolished. It's not always looking for the obvious peace or solution. That is the way to avoid being surrounded or being demolished. Sometimes war comes to your front door. And if your way of avoiding war is not fighting, you'll end up surrounded and demolished. Failing to understand and embrace the things that make for peace. I love that phrase because it wasn't a politician who used that phrase. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, you did not embrace the things that make for your peace. And this is what is coming upon you. So I think it's very important that we understand today, what are the things that make for peace? Because not understanding them is how we get demolished, how we are surrounded. Think about this for a minute. The people that followed Jesus and confronted the entrenched resistance of their culture with the gospel of Jesus, they faced hardships 
Every one of those disciples eventually were martyred. They were persecuted. They faced resistance, war, conflict, if you will, because they chose to follow Jesus. But in following Jesus, the path that following Jesus put them on set them into direct confrontation with the established culture of their day, the culture that crucified Jesus and that put him on the cross at Calvary. And so by confronting that culture as they followed the Lamb, as they followed the Prince of Peace, they were embroiled in conflict and they, they led lives that were fraught with hardship. But have you ever considered that the people who decided not to follow Jesus, the people that stayed behind in Jerusalem and clung to the culture, that clung to their familiar relationships, that clung to the approval of the Pharisees, the approval of the political, religious order of the day, it would be only a handful of years and they became demolished by the Roman Empire. So while the disciples are alive but facing hardships, those that didn't choose that path of discipleship ended up losing everything. Indeed, the nation was folded up, crushed, and blown away. And for the next 2,000 years, Israel did not exist until 1945 when the nation reemerged. I shared with you last week in the book of Joshua how that Joshua, the great leader, the great general of God's, God's people, led them across the Jordan River and into the land of Canaan and fought those battles for years against the Amorites and the Philistines and the, the, the people of that land that they were fighting against as they took the land that God promised them. <coughs> and at the end of his tenure, as he is, the, the aged general is about to die, he sees that, that the attitude that was there in the Sinai Desert when they were in the wilderness, and they kept looking over their shoulder and saying, you know, I'm tired of fighting these Amorites, and everywhere we go, we're in, a, we're in strife, we're in trouble, we're eating these crackers, and uh, they, they, were, they, they, they didn't like the life of confrontation. They were a people that had been delivered from slavery, but as the world saw them, they saw them as former slaves, but the way they really saw them is they are people on a trajectory. They are people going somewhere. They are people with a claim. They are claiming the land on the other side of that Jordan, and they're heading there. But many of them kept looking back over their shoulders. And Joshua was with that generation that died in the wilderness. And now years later, after they've entered the promised land, he sees that attitude. It's still working among them. They're tired of the fighting. They're tired of the conflict. By aligning ourselves with, with Jehovah, with Yahweh, with Almighty God, the God of Moses, who delivered with a high and lifted up hand, delivered us out of slavery. By aligning ourselves with them, we, we, keep, we keep being confronted by people who don't like us, who want us wiped out for, for I don't know, whatever reason. I, we're, we're beginning to think it's God. And right they were. And so... Joshua sees Israel, and he sees there's a divided heart among them. And many of them are just wanting to, to stop all this, and let's just chill out. 
And so he says to them in Joshua 24 and verse 15, If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served on the other side of the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now live. But as for me and my family, my house, we will serve the Lord. And really, I think that's where Bob Dylan got his song when he became a Christian for a little while. And he wrote that song, you got to serve somebody. I think he got it from there because the choice that Joshua puts before the people is, well, you're either going to serve the Lord or you will, by default, serve the gods of the Amorites. Or perhaps you want to serve the gods of your forefathers. But you can't be a god. You are living in an existence, and you must choose which kingdom that you want to live under. I thought the phrase was really interesting that he opened up with. He said, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord. I know that it's almost an unimaginable thought. How could somebody think that serving the Lord is evil? But the fact is, today, we have many Christians, indeed, we have many pastors, who believe that the tradition of serving the Lord, standing against darkness, calling sin, sin, calling people out from under iniquity, they see it as evil. They're tired of it. They're ashamed of that Christian heritage. They're ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. But they want to hold on to the good parts. And so there are people, and Joshua called them out. He said, if you think that God is wrong, if you think that serving the Lord is evil, then choose what God you want to serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we are at a moment of choosing. We're at a moment of choosing. Throughout history, God's people experienced their harshest conditions when they failed, refused to grasp the purpose of their time. You see, we're not here in this life just to willy-nilly decide, oh, you know what, I just want to have this kind of life. It's wonderful that we live in a land that allows us to think like that. You know, the many people in the world, they can't even get up in the morning and think, I want my life to be this. Their life is rigidly prescribed by circumstances beyond their control. They are not free. We are blessed in America to live under a constitution that godly men spent years hammering out, searching through the Word of God to find those principles that if people are responsible, and as, as, as uh, Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, one of the two, said, I present to you this constitution if you can keep it. They gave us a framework that we could experience this freedom. And so we have this freedom of choice and it gives us a mentality that we feel like, well, I've left my parents home, I've gone out, I can be whatever I want. And that is a blessing. Do you realize what a blessing it is to have that choice? And I look at many of you who I have known for many years some of you, I see your midlife. You're raising wonderful families. I knew you when you were teenagers. I, I saw you when you were youth. Before you even married and began your families, I've watched many of you, and I see 
the wonderful blessing of life unfolding in you. And it is a wonderful, glorious thing. But, but Joshua looked and he said, choose whom you will serve. Because if we fail to understand the hour that we're in, we have to bring, I guess what I'm saying is, we have to bring our dreams and our expectations and put them under the reality of what God says, this is the time that you have come to. I think the people that lived through World War II, when they were going through it in the midst of it, millions and millions of people wished they did not live in that time. It cost them dearly. It's only afterwards, in hindsight, looking back over their shoulders, they came up with the phrase, the greatest generation. They didn't call themselves the greatest generation during the first half of the 40s. It was because they survived it and they saw what they accomplished. But there are many people that don't want that, that door that they end up being drawn through, the purpose for the time that they are in. Let's take a moment and pray. Let's just ask the Lord, the things that make for peace, Lord, show us what they are. Stop this message for just a moment. Let's just, let's just reach out and ask the Lord. Lord, we pray to know the things that make for peace. We want to know this from you because you are the Prince of Peace. Yours, Lord, is the true peace. It, it's not pacifism in the face of iniquity. It's not a truce with the forces of darkness. It is the assertion of your lordship, and it is the triumph of your truth. That is what we seek, Lord. Give us courage. Give us brave hearts. Your love, your agape, will condition us and strengthen us. Make us able to fulfill your purpose in the hour that we live. This is our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So where are we today? That's the question. What is the purpose for this time? I want to announce to you this morning, I don't consider myself a great prophet or um, the spokesman of the kingdom, but... Um, God does speak to us, and he shows us things, and we need to share them. So I present to you for your consideration that I believe that we've arrived at a time of division, not unity. I believe that we've arrived at a time of choosing sides. I believe we've arrived at a time of war. And in 1 John chapter 3, 8, one of the greatest verses and statements of the New Testament, it really kind of quantifies Jesus and his mission and who he is. And it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning. Let me pause for a moment and say, we're not talking about the person that has moral struggles. We're not talking about the person that has habitual sin that they struggle against. The person who the scripture here is talking about who practices sin. Uh, if you're Tom Brady and you're going to play this afternoon and you're going to beat the Dallas Cowboys, 
because you're Tom Brady. And Chris Godwin and Mike Evans are going to catch the balls that you throw. You've prepared yourself. You, you're, you're there. You put the practice in. It's your life. You practice it. It's a skill. You, you're the goat, the greatest of all time. This is talking about the sinner who does that with their sin. They're not regretful. They're not remorseful. They love what they are doing. They work at it. Before I became a Christian, I practiced sin. I didn't get saved because I was convicted. I didn't get saved because I was sick of my sin or was looking for a place to offload it and get forgiveness or mercy. I wasn't seeking, didn't want mercy, didn't think I needed it. And so he's talking about people that practice, make a practice of sinning. Now let me go on. God says in his word, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God was manifest was to destroy the works of the devil. So we need to take that verse, the reason the Son of God is manifest, to destroy the works of the devil, and understand that, that God is talking about a world where those that make a practice refine it into an art form, into a warfare of sinning and dominate the world through the prince of the power of the air. Jesus was manifest to break that power, to break it, to destroy it. Hallelujah. So the reason I share that is this, because I said I believe we've come to a time of, of separation, of choosing, a time of war. It's because whether or not Jesus is manifest, he's manifest to destroy the works of the devil, whether or not he's manifest in 2022, in the next few years, in America, in our country, in our society, in our culture, whether he is manifest, as it says in 1 John 3.8, or not manifest, in our time depends on us understanding and doing the things that make for peace. It's not forecast and it's automatically going to happen. If God's people in America don't take hold of the things that make for peace, if we don't understand them and diligently follow them and apply them, then there is a surrounding and engulfing and a destruction that is waiting. And Jesus wants to manifest and destroy the works of the devil. But we are the body of Christ. What do we say? You see, when war arrives at your front door, you're not going to have peace just because you don't want to fight. That's called the insanity of alternative thinking in the face of reality deniers. And so... When it comes to your front door, you'll, if you don't want to fight, what you will have is captivity and death by default. There are some things that come upon us, and we didn't ask for them, but we are here, and it is our calling to deal with them. Jesus said, you are 
the salt of the earth. He said, you are the light of the world. Do you think that means that we should only shine when it's party time? Do you think it means that we're only salty and we're only the light when everything is wonderful? We get to take a bow and say, oh, praise God, the 80s are back. So how did we get to this place of conflict? I want to take the next few minutes and share with you a little historic view of the past 50 years because I believe we've been the church. When I say we, I'm talking now the collective body of Christ, all the Christian churches, Catholic, Protestant, um, Orthodox, uh, Pentecostal, Independent, all of them put together. We've been on a 50-year journey that has had a trajectory that has brought us from a certain place to where we are today. We didn't just wake up and the world went mad in the past three or four or five years or so. This has been coming on and building for some time. But let's talk about the church. What's that journey? Where are we today and how did we get here? Well, 50 years ago, after a half century, at the turn of the 20th century, after a half century of some pretty amazing Pentecostal outpourings and revivals and the reintroduction into the earth of God's supernatural power and signs and wonders. Um, it gave birth, at the beginning of the 1970s, late 80s, 70s, to a tremendous sovereign move of God called the Jesus People Movement. The Jesus Movement was thousands, maybe millions, of young people lost like I was coming supernaturally, sovereignly, under the move of the Holy Spirit, not through the, not through the apparatus of a religious system or a church or denomination, just organically, coming out of darkness and coming into the kingdom of God. It was a supernatural move of God as God revealed himself, not only across America, but around the world. The Jesus movement, at the same time, there was a companion movement going on in church denominations, the charismatic renewal. And the Catholic Church just received Holy Ghost fire. Priests and nuns and members were having all these alternative gatherings down in the basement, getting filled with the Holy Ghost and laying hands on people and casting out spirits and, and uh, being healed and seeing the Lord move and everywhere, all kinds of people. And there was a third leg to this stool called the ecumenical movement. Through the 70s, there was a great unity that happened that's hence the ecumenical movement. We had a wonderful, I was there, I lived through it. And I remember it, I, there hasn't been anything like it since. But there was a gigantic Holy Ghost kumbaya going on. And uh, it, was, it wasn't uh, manufactured. You didn't have to stir it up, it was just happening. You, if you didn't like it, you just had to leave. Because right. unity and power and anointing was flowing and just happening. Praise the Lord. You didn't have to drum up people to worship God. You had to tell them to stop. We've got to preach the message. Cool down. Just have a seat. That was revival. That, that broke out in the late 60s and 70s. And it just burned for the next 10 years or so. But then that revival led to great prosperity, kind of swerved into the 80s, 
And that revival gave way to, to tremendous prosperity. We, the body of Christ, we were high on the revelation of who we were. If you remember those times, all the great teaching and ministries were all about who I am in Christ and what I have in Christ, and I'm a believer. The blood covenant was being unveiled and taught, and we were learning what we have according to the covenant. And everything began to focus around the believer. And so that great prosperity, that great prosperity gave way to the, as oftentimes wealth and riches do, creates a spoiled generation. It gave way to what I call the excess of believerism. We went from clinging to and worshiping and celebrating Jesus to being all excited about who we were and what we had and our power and our authority. And so from the wealth of truth came this excess of believerism. We forgot, now hear this, we forgot that the anointing and the gifts still have to come from the hand of Jesus. That just because you're saved and filled with the Holy Ghost, just because you've got some minister or someone prophesied over you, and you've got the Lord living in you, doesn't mean that you are a walking Jesus. But we, that's what we thought. That's what we believed. And at any time and any condition we wanted to, we could just be healed, rise up, walk, because we'd read the book of Acts. We didn't realize those people were constantly going back to God, calling out about, and the Lord gave them those anointings, gave them those gifts. As they kept coming to him, he kept passing them out. It still has to come from his hand. So in our prosperity, we begin to slip. And so prosperity led to pride. And the next great shift on this path to bring us where we are today, we shifted from prosperity to pride. We began to build ministries around the gifts. Whole churches, the such and such healing church, the such and such deliverance church. And, um, and so people began to claim, well, what's your ministry? I have a ministry of healing. I have a ministry of miracles. And, and I'm not saying that it's not authentic that God uses people consistently in those ministries. But there's only one ministry. It's the ministry of Jesus and his gospel. That's the only ministry that actually exists. It's just Jesus' ministry. These things happen when Jesus walks into the house. We forgot that. We forgot the Jesus movement. We left the Jesus movement. And now we're in the, you know, we love to worship heroes in our culture. You know, they make them, I don't know how many... All these goofy movies, I'm sorry, some of you may really love those Marvel comics movies, but have you never, ever, I always thought they were, I find them fascinating, I guess, so they, they're entertaining, but I feel a little childish. It's like, come on, you know, who looks that good to begin with anyway? And then, you know, all this stuff that they do and the way they fight and all, I mean, what are we kidding? What are we looking for? We love hero worship. We like to, our heroes to be just super, you know, undefeatable people. And so the, the super preacher, this, we, we, we concocted the super preacher, filling auditoriums, waving the hand and blowing and people just falling out, rows. 
Do you understand where I'm going? I don't want to waste time camping out on this. But I don't know. Do you remember what Jesus said? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He didn't say the demons aren't subject to you. He just said, don't call that your ministry. Don't make that the object of your, your worship. Certainly believe that the demons will be subject, but that's because you're following me and you're doing what I say. And I will hand you that authority and that power as you need it. Can you say amen? amen. We begin to shift our focus from the one to the many. From God's presence to people's presence. You see, as we begin to build our ministries around who we were and what we had, all of a sudden the numbers of people streaming through the doors began to become important. See, in the Jesus movement, we only cared about one, and that was Jesus. If I'm there and it's just me and Jesus, we're going to have church. But see, something happened. Something happened. Now we're depressed unless we've got a thousand people because it's all about the numbers. Not the one, but the many. And so like the great seesaw, how many of you remember before we had electronic games? <laughs> Ours. How pathetic were we? The seesaw, the great seesaw. So church, like the great seesaw, as the numbers increased, the manifestations decreased. At first we didn't notice, but here's all these great claims, miracle ministry, and the miracles are drying up. Healing ministry, and the healings are diminishing. I remember, I lived through it, I watched it. I remember when signs and wonders and miracles flowed like water, but nobody was paying attention, everyone was paying attention to Jesus. But now that everyone's waiting to see the miracles, they're drying up. So the next transition is that pride led to deception. The pride of thy heart has deceived thee, the Bible says. Pride led to a church that fell into deception because stripped of power, churches went from, manif from, from manifesting to manufacturing. Remember Moses, he had the glory of God, his face shone. The Bible says he put a, put a shroud over his face so the, the people would think he was still shining. But under there, it was diminishing. It was wearing off. He didn't want the people to see that that glory was fading. And the glory was fading quickly, quickly. That seesaw was happening throughout the 80s and into the 90s. Numbers increasing. It was all about numbers. But the power of the one was being pushed further and further off into a corner somewhere. Breaks your heart when you think about it, doesn't it? It really does. If you live through it, if you live through it and, and you have forgotten, you remember it, it'll break your heart. So we went from manifesting to manufacturing. How-to conferences connected with the anointing. How to get the anointing. How to use the anointing. Whole conferences. Schools of the prophets. I remember when the schools of the prophets. If you're a real prophet of God, you don't want to go to a seminar or conference to get your prophet card punched. Because that's a sure sign that you're not a real prophet. 
Real prophets of God hang out with the one. They don't go to, a, go to some stupid conference. You know, Jeremiah, they were doing that back in Jeremiah. Nothing new under the sun. Back in Jeremiah's day, they were having prophet conferences. And God spoke to Jeremiah, and he said, I want you to go, and I want you to prophesy against these sons of the prophets, these schools of the prophets, and tell them, tell them that real prophets don't get their words from one another. They get them from God. You get along with God, you don't get around a whole bunch of people who've got the same gift you do. And you learn how to do these things. Church growth conferences. I remember I had pastored a large church during that Jesus movement time in the 70s and everything. And now I had a small church. But everything was about size. Everything was about numbers, church growth. And uh, I had to fight to keep my heart in the right place because values were changing. They had changed. And so it was all, every pastor I knew was running off to seminars every year, coming back with books and workbooks about how to make their churches grow. I thought I was there when churches were springing up out of nowhere and nobody was following a book or a how-to, five points or any of those things. So these how-to conferences, schools of the prophets, church growth seminars, they became the Tower of Babel that Christians were flocking to. So when attracting numbers replaced attracting God, the deception of relevance entered the church and swept the church clean of its light and power from the Holy Spirit. That, to me, was the last nail in the coffin to the body of Christ. Not just the church growth movement, but the whole relevance movement. If you were paying attention during the 90s, and as we rounded the corner into the new, the new uh, uh, millennium, you noticed that everyone was talking about relevance. Churches were changing their names. We're the relevant church. If you went to their websites or you read their literature, we are relevant. I went to pastor's conferences. All they did was sit around and talk about being relevant. We need to be relevant. I thought, what in the world is wrong with you fools? Sorry, but in my mind, a bunch of fools. What is wrong with you? Why are you interested in being relevant with the world? Don't you know that when the only thing you cared about was Jesus and what he said did, you were relevant because you were relevant to God. Amen. The only church that's relevant in a world of darkness is the one that doesn't kiss the behind of darkness, but lifts up the light. Jesus said, all right to say that. I figured I kind of did it in a Christian way. You get the idea. So listen to me. Listen. The word relevance, if you look it up to be relevant, it means applicable, appropriate, pertinent, important. I love this one, to the point. So pastors were styling their churches to be applicable, appropriate, and pertinent to the world. Do you like us? Do you think we're appropriate? Do you like the way we dress? Do you like the way we look? Do you like our music? Do, do you like what we have to be relevant to the culture or they're not going to hear us? 
They're not going to receive Jesus. Poor Jesus. What happened to him? Was he getting old? Was he losing his, his pizzazz? He needed to have these PR men masquerading as pastors, styling their churches, styling them in so that people would like Jesus? Are you kidding me? It, you know, when you listen to me laying it out like this, you probably like, like that airplane rising. To, you get a little queasy. You need to get the bag out. <laughs> the, the word relevant means to the point. Is the church where we've come today, are we really to the point? Is this the point? The more we have been interested and concerned about what people think and attracting people and uh, appealing to people, the more we've become to the point of culture, the less connected to heaven we are. So, to the point, is it set by God or is it set by the trends of culture? For 50 years, for 50 years, the church has been backsliding from being relevant with God to seeking relevance from the world. And pastors have become ashamed. Listen, I, I watch them, I listen to them. Past couple of weeks, I have listened to several on YouTube inner um, interviews. I saw number of interviews that uh, Oprah Winfrey had with very popular world-class pastors who pastor huge mega churches being, being asked and challenged, what do you believe about this and the issues of the day and all of the various forms of iniquity and sin and corruption in the culture? What do you pastors think about it? And one right after another was absolutely <clears throat> incapable they were incapable of producing an answer that even remotely resembled what the Bible said. And they all modified and everything that they said and quantified it by saying, we just love people. We just want to be known as the church that loves people. They have forgotten about loving God. They've forgotten about loving Jesus. They forgot what Jesus was like and what he really said, what he stood for. So much so today that if you stand up and preach the real Jesus, the real Jesus, he would be rejected in probably half the churches that claim to be Christian. We just love people, but we can't hate iniquity. I'm sorry, we, we just can't hate iniquity. But I want to read to you one of my favorite verses out of Hebrews. It speaks about Jesus and I want you to hear what the Bible says about Jesus. You, Jesus, have loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. Where's the true oil of rejoicing? Those that love righteousness and hate iniquity. The church today has lost its ability to hate iniquity. We can't even bring ourselves to hate iniquity because we're so scared to death of having an attitude or saying the wrong thing about a particular form of evil or iniquity. Why is that? Because the world we live in has refined sin and iniquity to an art form. They have made it a culture. If you haven't noticed, we have a whole political party that has coalesced around evil. 
and the promotion of evil. And we have the other political party that is quickly following. And they see their role as a sparring partner for these guys. The whole world is being drugged out into darkness and into left field. And where's the church? Incapable of commenting and saying, that is iniquity. That's not right. That's not true. That's not truth. We just want to love people. We don't want to hate anything. I think it's interesting that the Bible uses the word iniquity. It doesn't say he loved righteousness and hated sin. It says he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. And I find that in that technicality, there is something to be learned. Um, sins are the acts that come out of iniquity. Iniquity is the birthplace. Iniquity is the heart that produces acts of sin. Iniquity is the heart of Satan. It is the heart that is bent towards evil. And so the Bible says he hated iniquity. The Bible doesn't say that Jesus hated sins because I, I think that if it said that, then we would see a Jesus who just went stomping through towns and villages wherever he could find people with moral uh, uh, transgressions and just demonstrated his hate for those acts. Does it grieve him? Yeah, but you'd be surprised. Some of those sins are direct stick in the eye of God and he hates them for that reason. But many of them are just the ways in which iniquity binds and enslaves and destroys people's lives. And he hates it for that reason. Jesus' hate is aimed at the core, the root of where sin comes from. It comes from Satan, the prince of iniquity. The Bible says iniquity was found in Satan. I don't have a lot, lot of time, so I need to kind of wrap this up and bring it to a conclusion. But I have to say, because I brought us to this point, I might as well say it. Pastors today, not all, but a significant number. Because of that progression over the past 50 years, pastors today are paralyzed in the face of darkness. They don't know what to do. They won't speak against it because they're no longer in the business of saving people from sin. They're in the business of comforting people in their sin. Amen. And there's a huge difference. Because if I can give you a wonderful church and a great experience where you're comfortable, then we won't talk about your sin. That's between you and God. If the Lord wants to do something, then, you know, he'll do something. But what is the responsibility? There is a time for every purpose under heaven. So with the church preoccupied with the approval of people, Satan has risen to occupy every source of influence in our society today. Everyone. There's not a one healthcare, child raising, economics, politics, intellectual, school, education, everything. Every area of influence, Satan has arisen and he has taken control of it. Every one of them. And it's rising in the church. How did Satan get this? opportunity. That, by the way, my Christian friend, is what you are feeling. When you say, this doesn't feel like the world I grew up in, then you're right, you are. Satan was always around. He was always the prince of the power of the air, but the salt was salty. 
The salt was salty, and the light of the world was shining. The light has been pushed into its mega churches. It has been shoved into its prescribed areas. Barriers have been put up, and pastors have succumbed and submitted and have become compliant. Just give us more people, and we'll stop bothering you. But Jesus was manifest to destroy the works of the devil. Do you want to see signs and wonders? Do you want to see Jesus destroy the works of the devil? There's only one way I know of it. Jesus loved righteousness and he hated iniquity, which meant that Jesus was willing to stand up and say something about the darkness. And believe you me, if you'll think about this, you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you'd be amazed at the percentage of Jesus' proclamations and statements and lessons given publicly, how much of them address the politics of his day because politics ruled everything in people's lives back then, just as they do today. And boy, I'll tell you, Jesus had whole messages that dealt, they were the woe messages, woe unto you. They weren't Sunday school lessons. So he's healing people, he's delivering people. Those that were broken and humble felt his love. They felt that kindness, but they also felt safe because they saw him dealing with the devil. He saw him dealing with darkness. I don't want a father who's not going to fight for me when the devil tries to kick the front door of the house in and march in and attack the family. I want a, I want a real dad. Are you listening to me? Yeah. Praise God. Would you, Antonio, defend your sons if Satan kicked the front door in? You, you'd spend your life doing it. Why do we wait till the front door's been kicked in? It's been kicked in in our schools. It's been kicked in in the media. It's been kicked into every area of influence in our culture. So when are we going to stand up and start speaking truth? See, we don't fight with worldly weapons. We fight with the love of Jesus. And the love of Jesus is nothing if it's not truthful, if it's not honest. It's, it's a shovel, not an agricultural implement. So the question before we pray is, where are we today? And I said, yeah, I believe we're at a time of choosing, choosing sides, separation. You should pick up, if you can, you can get it down, download it from our website at faithchristianchurch.com on the message uh, pull-down menu. The message, the two streams. The Lord gave me, laying on the platform and praying, November 2019, a vision, real genuine vision from God, showed me what was about to happen. And out of it came a message I shared with you back in 2019, the two streams. So you may want to get that and listen to it. I don't have time to reference it this morning. I just want to mention. But what time is it? Now is the time to uproot. Now is the time to tear up the fear of man that has been growing in the church. Now is the time to hate the iniquity that's not only taken over the world, it's rising up in the church. As churches are, are literally celebrating the corruption and the sin of the world, putting out on their signs the particular brands of iniquity that are, that are welcome 
Know that you can come in with this iniquity and we will embrace you. We will welcome you. Now is the time to boldly speak truth. And so we need to return to following Jesus. Amen? All right. Let's stand together. I, I want to pray for you. Um, I want to pray that, that God will lead, give you wisdom, strengthen you, encourage you, because walking in this is not easy. Getting emotional and just getting intense or reactionary, that, that's easy. But walking in wisdom means going to God, letting the Lord deal with you. But making the decision to say, I am not going to be compromising. I'm not going to be retreating. I am going to stand for what is truth wherever I find that opportunity to make that stand. And so I want to pray for you that the Lord will give you wisdom and help you to do that. Let me just say this. I know that a lot of what I said today paints a bleak forecast, but know this, you probably already do, that there is a phenomenal community of the people of God throughout the face of the earth right now where tremendous things are happening, where the believers are walking in harmony and unity, where they're celebrating the presence of the Lord, where they are getting ready for revival. Hallelujah. And I want to believe that we are among them. Hallelujah. And these messages about zeal are, are, are designed to speak to your zeal, that you will become zealous about these things and know where you stand today and let God do something great with us. Heavenly Father, I thank you. For Lord, the world, the nations will one day be handed over to you. But today, we are a world in conflict. And today, Lord, your people have been on a 50-year course, bumpy, up and down, up and down, but a general downward trend with respect to the true anointing and power of God. We need it. We need that anointing. But you will not send the Spirit if the truth is not honored. Father, help us to be people of truth. Where truth matters, it truly matters. And people who are willing to fight for the truth, not surrender their voice in the face of lies and of darkness. So, Lord, help us to get the education. Help us to learn your word. Help us to be able to respond lovingly but firmly. Help us, Father God, to become a people that have recaptured the zeal of the Lord. Father, I pray that those good things that you are bringing upon your people will rise because where darkness is, light is much more. Hallelujah. And I believe that. I believe that for us in Jesus' mighty name. And now before we close this prayer, if there's even one person within this prayer under the sound of my voice, and you, my friend, are on the outside looking in, you have not made Jesus Lord of your life, there's an opportunity before you right now. Open your heart and just pray, God, are you real? Jesus, are you God? Come. Come. If you are come into my heart, I humble myself before you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. 
I ask you to come into my life. Renew me. Give me the precious gift of the Holy Spirit, Father God, and let me be among your people, Father. Receive him right now. Open your heart. Ask him to come in. Receive Jesus as Lord of your life. Hallelujah.